Welcome to the Final Girls podcast, where we explore the intersections of horror, film, and feminism. This is Anna, co-founder of the Final Girls and your podcast host. While our current season is all about female monsters, occasionally on this podcast we do cover new films or series that we really want to talk about. And today's bonus episode is a bumper one. In today's episode, we're talking all about Saint Maud, the debut film by writer-director Rose Glass, and probably the most hyped about horror film of the last year. The first part of the episode is going to be an in-depth discussion about the film with film critic Kelly Weston. There will be a brief chat pre-spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen the film yet, and there will be a clear separation for the spoiler section. So if you haven't seen St. Maud and you don't want to hear any of the deeper conversation about the film, feel free to jump over that bit and come back to the episode once you've seen the film. There will be a chunky spoiler section and at the end of our discussion uh, you'll be able to hear my interview with writer-director Rose Glass and lead actor Morfitt Clark who plays Maud. Saint Maud is out in cinemas in the UK from today so you do have ample chance to see it if you feel safe going back into the cinema but for now enjoy our deep dive into Saint Maud. Dear God your presence graces the air and soon everyone will see Hi, are you Maud? Yes, hi. It takes nothing special to mop up after the dying. You're prettier than the last one. But to save a soul, that's quite something. Bless Amanda's body and bless her mind, which is shrouded in darkness. When you pray, do you get a response? Oh, it's like he's physically in me. It's how he guides me. My little savior. Kelly, welcome back to the podcast. It's been a minute. How are you doing? Yes, I'm good. Thank you for having me back. It's always a pleasure. We, <laughs> you promised me you'd come back to talk about St. Maud when we did Carrie. And mm -hmm. I'm really glad you did because I've been <laughs> dying to talk about this film in depth. Me too. Um I saw it last year when it was playing at um, mm. different festivals, um, and uh, yeah, it's just such a, a weird and excellent little film, <laughs> um, and I'm happy to like go deep on it as well because I mm. think you know, without going too long on the, on the <laughs> before we even really start, like you know, we're sort of living in an era of like elevated horror, and and that's a really frustrating term because it's like you know people are sort of just waking up to you know, what horror has always done, is always mm -hmm. doing, um, which is sort of confronting certain social realities, but it's also just really fun. And I think mm -hmm. both of those things are in St. Maud. I mean, you can, those political and social implications are there, but it's also just like a fun watch. Mm. Um, so yeah, excited to talk about this movie. Me too. So what we're going to do here is that the for the first section of the podcast, we're going to talk about it without spoiling it for anyone who might not have seen it or not heard much about it. And it's sort of undecided whether to whether they want to spend some time with it. And then I'll do a break and we will go in depth into all the myriad of layers that Simon has. <laughs> so tell me your overall thoughts on the film. You've already mentioned that you like it, but 
what did you mm-hmm. make of it? I think that it is fantastic. It's a story about, I mean, the reason I should say, I guess, uh, that we ended up bringing it up while we were talking about Carrie is because mm-hmm. it's drawing from that film quite a lot. And it is drawing from actually a lot of horror films and um, the way that horror tends to make women's bodies monstrous and Mm -hmm. also you know within this genre particularly because it's like sort of religious horror there's a lot of history there where you know the the people who are typically possessed are either children or women and a lot of times it's it's women and so we'll get i guess deeper into that um but it's drawing from from all of these films but it's still like doing something that i think is really new you know i went into this movie and i thought like yeah i can see like this is just going to be like a fun little watch hopefully mm-hmm. but i ended up being really surprised by it like the trajectory i thought that i knew what was going to happen and actually it, it completely like um uh exceeded <laughs> all my expectations and yeah, it's just like really well executed. The cinematography is great. The the music is great. Um, the performances are incredible. Um, Jennifer Ely is somebody who uh, deserves a much better, much more high profile career. She's an excellent actress. And I'm excited to see what Morpheus Clark does. Uh, I hope I haven't butchered this woman's name too much. But um, she's great in this uh, what I consider Dev Patel's David Copperfield. No disrespect to Yanucci, <laughs> but all respect to Dev Patel. Um, and she's great in that. So I'm I'm really excited. Like, and this film is just is entirely hers. Like she plays this discomfort uh, within her own body so well. Um, so yeah, I I loved it. You mentioned it a little bit before, but a lot of people have referred to it as religious horror and others as kind of more of a psychological horror. And where do you think St. Maud stands kind of within the myriad of subgenres that horror has? I think that, I mean, I get where pe- why people want to sort of fall on, on one side of the other, because I think a lot of that also just depends on your own personal beliefs. But I think its real strength is that it has this core ambiguity uh, at the center of it, that it can be either. And it's rewarding either way. I think for me personally, I think you sort of preclude, you really just close on like a a lot of uh, fascinating implications by saying it's one or the other. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it can be both. I think it it can reasonably be, um, it incorporates both of those elements um, in a way in which we'll <laughs> examine, not to keep saying that, but like it, it really incorporates those in, in ways that are hugely satisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, because the thing is that like at its, you know, essentially it is a film about loneliness mm-hmm. and yeah, those things that sort of are emerge out of that are, um, yeah, it's, it's more, I think about what you bring to those two different dimensions of, of, the film um but yeah I think like the thing that just sort of makes it so urgent and relatable is like mm-hmm. yeah it's really it's a movie about the nature of loneliness and and uh, what that does to people and um you know a lot of people are also placing quite a lot of expectations on this being the scariest film of 2020 as if 2020 needed any more horror right um, I- <laughs> <laughs> why <laughs> But did you find it and you know you, you mentioned at the beginning of of the chat of kind of it being uh, an elevated horror and um you know very very big air quotes here because I mm-hmm. despise that that term yeah. but did you find it scary um, 
I have a real like it's kind of like if you eat hot sauce for really long periods of time <laughs> that your taste buds are slightly off kilter mm -hmm. um and this is a film that's also sort of primed to get me I suppose I should just be like fully transparent like you know I grew up Catholic and so in some ways I was both predisposed to horror films and also <laughs> not very um, good with certain genres. So like I used mm -hmm. to be really afraid of like demonic possessions and stuff. Um, but in the beginning this film wasn't like, it wasn't that scary. Like there was a lot of atmosphere that I think was like really well done mm -hmm. and well handled, but there is a moment. Uh, the first time I saw it, I was prepared for it this time, so it didn't get me, but there's a moment the first time I saw it that comes late in the film mm -hmm. that was extremely surprising that I okay. absolutely did let out a bit of a gasp. Okay. So I do think it's quite it's quite scary. <laughs> um, and there, there are also moments of it that are just more much more about like, uh, and this is, is so indebted to Clark's performance, is mm -hmm. that it's about how much you can relate to like the things that she's doing to herself um her there's another moment <laughs> of um real self-flagellation <laughs> that is mm -hmm. just quite distressing that is incredibly graphic and, and scary in that way so um you uh shall we say put yourself in her shoes <laughs> and it is extremely <laughs> it's extremely extremely disturbing to watch um, so yeah, I don't know. My answer is, uh, it is, but I wouldn't like those expectations are extremely high. I think it's a well made horror film and I think it deserves to be up there in like, you know, the canon. Cause it's just like, it's just that good to me. Yeah. And how do you think kind of it treats faith and religion? I know it's, it's a really complicated, quite big question um but sometimes it it you know like you mentioned growing up catholic and stuff mm. there can be a certain kind of predisposition to either reject films that deal overtly with religion and faith because you're almost yeah. afraid of them being offensive to your own yeah. relationship with faith and religion but yeah. how do you think saint maud which is using a lot of religious iconography and very particularly mm. also kind of christian iconography how right. do you how do you think it uses religion to draw out the terror that's such a Great question. <laughs> it's such a big question. It, I think that, hmm, I think it's, I think it's really interesting that because it, it is using like a lot of religious iconography, but there's also like a real, there's a lot of like specifically Catholicism, mm -hmm. uh, in there. Like she does like the sign of the cross and, it's, it's interesting because in in these films, Catholicism is, and I should say, like, I mean this in a purely literary slash mm -hmm. symbolic way, nothing to do with, like, the Catholic institution, which is very harmful. Yeah. But in these films, it tends to be, like, almost like a minority religion. It's mm -hmm. a, it's an, a, the religion of the other in a, in a weird way because I, I should say, like, specifically for American and British films where... Mm -hmm. You know, the nations are largely Protestant yeah. slash secular. And so the way that Catholicism is used in, in throughout, or for the most part, uh, historically in horror is not unrelated to the way that something like voodoo is used, which is as a technology. There's a way that religion and nation are kind of, are actually, you know, no, like deeply linked in the way that they are sort of, um, conspiring on women's bodies, like, 
nation and religion are sort of mapped onto their bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it becomes really interesting in a film like this where, you know, it's set in England, which is largely secular now. It's very unusual for Maud to be as religious as she is, period. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is also interesting that she's, like, taken on this religion of, uh, you know, the minority in, mm-hmm. in England. Um, and at the same time that Amanda doesn't believe in anything. So I think in a way they both are sort of, rejecting um, mainstream (laughs) communities. Mm -hmm. And I think that sort of ties back into their loneliness. Mm. Um, So yeah, I think that Catholicism Catholicism in the film is used in a really complex way. I don't think that she's making a particular judgment on faith at all because I think we can it's very obvious that Maude has taken this to an extreme that is unreasonable um (laughs) but (laughs) yeah I think it sort of adds dimension to their characters Mm -hmm. in that way it becomes a way of showing that yeah here are these two women and in some ways they are actually doing like different radical things I mean like Amanda you know is it she's dying she's an older woman I think like in the public consciousness people tend to think of older women as these sexless creatures and actually she's doing this really radical project of of you know going about finding pleasure yes. um in her last days and then Maud herself is kind of like on a bit of a <laughs> is doing something pretty radical for a woman of her age as well and that she's like completely concerned about you know spiritual transcendence but that is also sort of I think linked to a lot of self-hate and guilt which we'll also talk about later um but yeah I think the religious aspect begins to be like this really um, fascinating entry point into thinking about culture and and nation and um, I think like there are certain uh, complexities that it that it adds that I don't think a lot of other filmmakers would you have used it in that <laughs> in that same way um, especially given that she is drawing from a lot of of um, uh, horror films mm. in this genre in mm. this vein anyway subgenre. I'm I'm really I'm really keen to move into the spoiler section of our conversation already. But um, before <laughs> we do, who do you think would enjoy this? I mean, you you've mentioned that it draws from a lot of horror films. We brought it up when we talked about Carrie. Um, so, what kind of horror fan do you think would enjoy this film the most? Um, definitely. I mean, we mentioned that it's about the psychological horror and a religious horror. So if you're into either of those things, I think you will enjoy this film. I think it uh, does both of these genres well. (laughs) It It does them proud as well. And, you know, I think if you're into a bit of body horror, there's something in there for you as well. Um, But I also, I almost want to say that, you know, this is just a film that is pretty much open to, to anyone. Like, as I said, there is that one scary moment at the end but I do think it is a film that's sort of sparsely populated with jump scares there's like not a lot of them um and you know if you're also a person who's not who doesn't care about spoilers stay tuned for the spoiler section so I will tell you what the (laughs) what bit you need to be prepared for (laughs) um but yeah I think it's pretty much for everyone I think it's so well done like I think it would be a shame to I mean obviously people have their reasons for staying away from horror I respect Mm -hmm. that so that's fair but like if you definitely want an introduction (laughs) or you want to start watching more horror like this is the way to do it um 
because it's just a good film also like it's just it's I feel like I keep saying this it's very well executed it's excellent <laughs> it's very well made it's amazing yeah We've done enough pussyfooting around the spoilers. <laughs> so let's move into our full discussion about Saint Maud. Nothing worthwhile comes easily. Well, let's talk about Maud as a character. What do you make of her as a protagonist? Um, I think that she is pretty unusual. I mean, as we were saying, like, it's quite, there is something very singular about her <laughs> as a, per, particularly because as we, as we were saying, like, you know, she's a super religious young woman. Mm -hmm. um, she's also deeply uncomfortable in her own skin. There's yes. something like, it's very cringy to watch her. <laughs> she's clearly like unhappy. But there is, I mean, like, again, all credit to Morpho Clark and, and obviously also Rose Glass for, you know, directing this performance. Yeah. Like, it is so, she's so watchable and, and really, like, you know, pitiable. <laughs> she is, um, you're sort of, I think that it's, because it, it, to me, you know, voiceovers are, I despise them, basically. I don't know why I was trying to be polite <laughs> about this. I don't like them. Um, Never try I to think, be polite. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's just like, it. typically it gives filmmakers like a, an excuse mm. to be like quite lazy. Mm. But you kind of need to be in her he her head to sort of understand the nature of her, her loneliness mm. and, and her interiority because... It doesn't just reveal, you know, how um, that this is a person who's clearly like starved for affection and validation, um, but also that she she does have, and I mean Jennifer Ely's character will say this later, but she does have a real problem with like taking responsibility for her actions. Like she has like huge, a huge amount of shame, mm. um, and really just like a, a d deeply seeking to sort of disappear into. Um, something else like there's mm -hmm. a real sort of hatred of her own body which is interesting considering that like you know there's a lot of she does like a sort of hodgepodge of christianity but in catholicism in particular like it's a very like flesh focused yes. religion it's deeply focused on the body and the corporeal and she is an absolute enemy to her own body um and so that's interesting and i mean you think you can that is definitely um I mean, that's not modern, but obviously we talk about those issues a lot more, the mm -hmm. way in which women are sort of, um, it's ingrained in them to sort of think of their bodies as, to objectify them and, and to think of them as sort of, um, to have a sort of antagonistic relationship with them rather than like one of comfort. Yes. Um, so all that to say, I think she ultimately is so weird and at the same time super relatable that mm -hmm. it's, it's like... <laughs> It's a very, it's very difficult to sort of put your finger on um, what it is about her that makes her so um, weirdly charismatic. But, yeah, yeah, she really on on second watch, she really did. Rem after we'd already had our conversation about Carrie, I kept thinking about mm -hmm. Carrie in the same way, sense of she, yeah. you want to pity her, but also you want to comfort her. And you empathize with her, but also she's sort of almost repellent and charismatic at the same time. Yeah. And she's weird and <laughs> off-putting and kind of scary, but also you can totally see almost the, the path 
that she's had to go through to get to yeah, that yeah. that mod and it's interesting as well that there is a a duality to her identity because she mm-hmm. at one point in the middle of the film when she bumps into her old nursing colleague she she's revealed to actually her real name is Katie and Maud is kind of part of this Catholic religious reinvention that she put herself through where she right. transformed herself into someone else because she couldn't I mean this is me interpreting it she couldn't bear to be Katie anymore and that's kind of that sort of guilt and self-hate that you were talking about before and I was wondering what you thought about the way that Maud carries her trauma because that's sort of the first way that we meet her it's like these sort of flashbacks that we don't realize are flashbacks at the time at the very start of kind of this incident at the hospital where she um, breaks someone's ribcage essentially accidentally when trying to give them CPR and that keeps coming back to her and what do you think about the way that she that she lives and handles her trauma it's interesting because we see the whole we get sort of glimpses of it and we're not really sure what we're seeing mm. up until this moment where she like takes this guy home and starts having sex with him which I also think is fascinating because obviously Christianity and not the only it's not the only religion that does this but mm. is a religion that is super uh sexually repressive re- yeah. repressive yeah and um yeah it is interesting that during this scene and really this entire scene sequence because she first she goes to a bar and mm-hmm. she picks up a guy and she gives mm-hmm. him a hand job and it is like the one of the grimmest things I've ever seen yep. <laughs> and we're talking about horror like yeah <laughs> that's it um but she does that and then she takes this guy home and she has sex with him and it's clear that she's not really enjoying it I mean mm. maybe she's sort of physically kind of getting off but but like it doesn't seem like it's a a real deep pleasure and it's also you know it's it's during we should say you know before we like get too deep into it like at this point amanda has fired her so it's a low point for her it's a real low point and i think she's also sort of again trying on a new identity almost Mm. she's trying on amanda's way of moving through the world is impossible for her because like she doesn't like herself (laughs) and it's I mean it's also like a natural consequence of that when you don't like yourself you end up trying on different identities Mm -hmm. but I think you know that fits so well to me and and religion is such an interesting way of communicating that discomfort in one's own body because it is generally as we're saying like you know it's concerned with the spiritual world and, mm-hmm. and not the flesh and yet Catholicism is a flesh fit or one of the faiths main face of Christianity is like super focused on the body and yet mm-hmm. within her body she holds all of these contradictory um, elements of that which really I think you know play out in a, in a fascinating way in this particular moment of the film because she has sex with this guy mm-hmm. who then proceeds to sort of like take it to a really non-consensual level oh yeah that's a that's a rape scene yeah yeah exactly and so i think it's important to more yeah. about that and but um right after that scene you know she's possessed by god and sort of lifted up off of her feet and so mm. she yeah it's this different like the way that those scenes are juxtaposed i think are really interesting to um uh, sort of analyze because you're you're getting somebody who clearly like does, sees the body as a kind of like as burdensome mm. and uh, which is you know 
it's it's hard it's difficult to watch on like so many levels like mm. we're talking about like about this on like a literal level but um also like just really emotionally tough to watch as well just watch somebody just be so um cruel to themselves and also right after the scene she like puts nails in her shoes and like walks across the boardwalk with them um and so yeah it's really quite torturous you're pointing into so many interesting directions and all of them actually come back to the relationship of Maud with her body which is Mm. so interesting and you're right like Catholicism is like I grew up in Spain which is mostly Catholic anyway Mm. so my primary religious education when I was growing up was also Catholic and it's so obsessed with the flesh and the body and with sin and guilt Mm. and how you carry the guilt in your flesh and how to exercise that guilt you kind of have to punish the flesh or you know starve it in some ways and Maud is so interesting because you almost don't know whether that self-hate comes from before or actually I think you do because she's got scars like self-harm scars that are clearly from before her religious turn or her transformation into Maud and all the self-flagellation which is a different manifestation of that it's sort of more tied into religious practices, especially Catholic practices that are quite old. And um, even the way that she does it, the pins in her shoes, um, you know, the um, she kneels on, I forget what it's called, like the an, like an acorn or something like that when she's yeah. praying to yeah. constantly just have a level of bodily discomfort as if right. she needed to punish herself in order to be closer to God. And her relationship with God is also very physical. Like, it's not just, it's not a voice. It's not, you know, a particular image of Jesus or anyone in particular. She's sort of mishmashing everyone. But Mm. she, even when she describes it, it's like, it's a feeling. And Mm. the biggest one is when she sort of floats in this rapturous kind of thing. Or when she falls down on the stairs, like in almost like an orgasmic um, seizure. And I've never seen anything like it where it is kind of very much going through her body, but it's both horrific and sort of comforting. And that's the confusing part of is this in her head or is it such an intense level of faith that it affects her physically? Yeah, it's weird because it's such a um, her experience of God is so sensual. Mm. Um, and so uh, even with your, you know, you mentioned the scene where she sort of like falls back and there's like orgasmic pleasure. And um, there is that scene, but there's also several smaller scenes where she and Amanda are just praying and she just sort of starts gasping um, in this way that sort of seems quite sexual. And I think, you know, that's a, a interesting place maybe probably to like pull Amanda in because yes. like uh, she is the great counter to that. Um, she is somebody who experiences or like really um, takes pleasure in the physical. Yes. Um, so she's like drinking, she's having sex. Um, she's also, you know, a dancer or she's a retired dancer before she got ill. And so, yeah, the body is is for her an instrument, too. And she um, takes it so much more, um, (laughs) I should say, I guess, generously. Like, she's so much more careful about her body. It's not a burden to her. It's something that is, yeah, she's completely comfortable in Mm -hmm. and believes that it deserves pleasure, which is, like, absolutely antithetical to, like, what 
Vaughn believes. But yeah, I think these two women sort of like become this sort of weird two sides of a of a coin of like, I guess, oh, actually, maybe that's a little reductive. I, I think there are two, two sort of facets of the way that it can be to sort of exist as a woman in the world where, you know, you and I think also it's important to mention that Amanda is a little older, but you know, also somebody whose body and and I also should be careful how I'm saying this, but like you know, her body is in a real way like kind of failing her because she's dying, and so you get to see somebody who's like really frustrated with um, the limit the limits of of their body um, in a in an entirely different way. Um, but I I also see why it's completely seductive to Maude, who isn't actually capable of the things that Amanda is, because I mm -hmm. think she's sort of like, she really needs to deal with this trauma of sort of accidentally being responsible for somebody's death. But um, yeah, so she can't like, you know, when you're filled with that much shame, you know, you can't really have like, a great sexual experience if you don't mm. believe that you deserve pleasure <laughs> and yeah so her her only like sort of for mod um her only way of really experiencing any sort of sexual pleasure it has to be pure it has to be sort of sacred or mm -hmm. holy or yeah it's really tragic but also i think a really fascinating study of like the ways that women sort of have to or the how they're conditioned to sort of navigate the world through their bodies, largely. Um, and I'm not sure that, like, and when I say that, you know, like, I, I think mm -hmm. both of them are two different extremes because Amanda's not really happy. Like, she doesn't seem, she's not really the most well-adjusted person. She just it has this sort of one-up on mod in that she doesn't see herself as, you know, someone deserving of punishment, which really makes, I think, you know, it's religion or Christianity in particular is, is, uh, can be used very fruitfully if you think you deserve shame because there's a load of shame in there. I mean, you mentioned that they're kind of extremes in the way that they relate to their body. And mm -hmm. I think that's so interesting because Maud is just all coiled up and repressed and repressing herself and repressing her body and mutilating her body, really, mm -hmm. to address um, her internal trauma and her internal issues and trying to externalize her relationship with God in many ways whether as Amanda who and I found it really interesting when there's a pan a shot of the books that she's written or books that have been written about her work one of them is titled the body is a stage yeah um so like it's very clear and there's kind of snippets of some of the the choreography and all of it is kind of very erotic very modern She's uncomfortable in what her body has become once it's sick. But yeah. it's very clear that that has nothing to do with her own internal mental relationship with herself and with her body. It's her tool. It's her um, It's her tool as an artist, as a dancer. And it's also a tool for pleasure. Yeah. But what do you think about their relationship in itself? I find it really interesting as kind of a perhaps another entry into this sort of female psychodrama sub sub genre that I'm a yeah. really big fan of you know starting with persona to single mm. white female to always shine it's very homoerotic it's very homoerotic <laughs> but like what the tension between them I find really really exquisite what do you make <laughs> of it um 
I, first of all, love it. I'm sad that it isn't a romance. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think I, I feel like I, I've written a review about this, mm-hmm. which is hopefully out tomorrow for a movie notebook. And uh, I looked back at it, and I think I, I can feel myself just quite bitter about, like, because I think I say something like, oh, a po- the possibility of a romance is teased, and <laughs> it never comes to fruition. Um, but that's another interesting thing, you know, like an interesting way to explore that is, is mm. through religion because mm. Maud's name means powerful battler, uh, battler. And, um, yeah, it's, a uh, religion has, has sort of long been used in, in warfare, uh, and conquest. And I do think it's interesting that Maud can only sort of marshal or, really think about attraction or or sex in religious terms i mean even after she has sex with those two guys and ways that feel like you know completely unsexy and uh you know there's the rape scene but also you know she doesn't even when she's um sort of giving that guy a hand job she's not she doesn't seem to be enjoying this in sort of any way they seem like quite dead acts yeah but her tension with Amanda is, you know, fascinating because it's like, here are two people who actually maybe could get along in different circumstances if Maude could, like, get out of her head. And there's no way for them to sort of meet each other in the middle because, you know, there is on the one hand too much shame from Maude and also a lot of depression, I think, from Amanda because this is somebody who... You know, if you think about, like, you're, when you're so comfortable in your own skin and in your own body, and then you begin to also, like, lose a your autonomy and how, I think, difficult that must be. Like, you know, she is a character that is constantly, um, you know, yeah, she's, like, really bitter. She goes between, you know, sort of, like slight amusement and I think she is very amused by Maude but for the most part she is quite miserable and so yeah I think it it is just two different sides of just like not being able to um or not feeling as if you're in control of your body and not being Mm -hmm. able to sort of like move like feel comfortable in these new in these two states for both of them so yeah it's almost like you have to yeah there's no possibility of them like uh, that disappointment, I think, is is very purposeful <laughs> um, because, yeah, they're really two people who are sort of experiencing, who sort of getting their, get in their own way a lot mm-hmm. as well. And I think, you know, we were talking about Carrie, actually, but I also just thought, like, and I wish I would have thought of this a little before, <laughs> so I could have watched it recently, but um, uh, there's also a lot of the film, you know, Repulsion in mm, the Roman oh Polanski God, film. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, that's another film about somebody who about a woman, uh, Catherine Deneuve. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry again for butchering this woman, but um, who's who's deeply sexually repressed, mm-hmm. and uh, she's the other thing that is happening in that film because there's a lot of um, there are a lot of links between I think Repulsion and Insane Ma, but one of the main things I think that's interesting is like that's a film that is about immigrants. Um, and that doesn't get talked up a lot, but mm-hmm, it's it's mm-hmm. Catherine Deneuve, this Belgian woman, and her sister. And I think they're in London, but they may just they be are like in some London. other English town. Okay. Yeah. And so in part, it's also, you know, like 
this woman who is deeply sexually repressed and anytime a man comes near her, uh, she feels as though she's being raped and mm -hmm. uh, it's another like psychological thriller. Um, I don't think there's a super religious aspect to that. In fact, I think there's, there's some hint of sexual trauma. Um, but yeah, in part that's, you know, another, that's a film that's sort of like also thinking about culture and nation and, and boundaries and uh, in a way she's also keeping herself from being penetrated by another culture and I think that is also present in in mod and in a way because I mean we're talking about like as we were saying earlier you know you think about religion you think about nation and the ways that they have sort of uh, meshed together for mm -hmm. women um, mm -hmm. and really stifled them there's a really interesting point that you that you were sort of circling around of kind of in repulsion. Yeah. There's a big thing about her really rejecting touch. Like she seems yeah. really allergic to anyone touching her, even in a you know non-sexual way. And there's mm -hmm. this great scene that I still remember, and I haven't seen the film in ages, of kind of hands coming out of the um and coming out of the walls of her apartment, sort of trying yes. to grab her. Yeah. And there's an interesting parallel with Maud almost flinching at anyone's touch um like when her colleague sort of tries to hug her she's like a dead fish she doesn't really yeah. know how to react to it even when um when she's helping her with her stretches right uh, amanda touches just the necklace that's sort of peeking out of her uh uniform and yeah. she flinches as well so there's like this real repulsion to having her body touched in any way right which I th and i yeah. think and it's weird because like, but at the same time, like she is a sort of, she's a real spectator because she mm. <laughs> loves to, you know, the camera um, does a lot of simulating her own gaze and sort of roving over Amanda's body. And then she at one point also watches Amanda have sex. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's interesting that she like, she's a person who, and, and I mean by Ma, like she's somebody who clearly like really is starved for intimacy but is unable herself to sort of experience it mm -hmm. um but is like i think you know really craves it i mean that's like that's so uh there's something about that that feels like quite pertinent i mean i think there's a yeah. way that you know at the outset people might think like oh well it's a film about somebody who's like a religious freak and how is that relatable but i think the things that she's sort of struggling with are very um uh are pretty like ongoing for people yeah no, absolutely. And I remember thinking about this film a lot, even in the first lockdown when I spent mm. nine weeks without seeing or touching another human being. <laughs> Maud, uh, St. Maud, a film for the age, a film for the era. <laughs> Um, but I did want to pick up on something you mentioned at the beginning of our chat, and mm -hmm. it's kind of the the multitude of political and social levels that mm. the film also touches. That is one of the things I haven't seen really commented as much in all of yeah. the you know mostly glowing reviews. Actually, I think they're universally glowing reviews. Yeah. Um, and I find it really interesting the fact that uh, Maud is working for Amanda. And that power dynamic and the fact that she's living, it's never really clear whether by choice or by necessity in kind of borderline squalor. And right. she is, or she was a nurse and now she's a, a hospice nurse. Yeah. So what do you think about kind of the, some of the, the political and the social commentary that also underlines the film? 
yeah, there's a huge class gap between them. And that wasn't like as apparent to me weirdly on the first time around uh, versus the second time I watched it. But yeah, it's a it's interesting because Maude is her nurse, but Maude also ends up taking on a lot of uh, the responsibilities of a maid. And mm -hmm. there's a way that, you know, during a party, uh, an ill-fated party, um, Maude is making the hors d'oeuvres or assembling, like, yes. you know, the plates or whatever. Mm -hmm. And there a woman comes in and the way that she speaks to her is just horrible. It's really condescending and shitty and I think you also think about you know the very ironic implications of a woman who is a nurse but probably is only eligible for you know would not be able to probably afford like private therapy right mm -hmm. like she would have mm -hmm. to go through the NHS which is very overburdened and um, there are really long wait times in order for people to sort of like get into um, uh, therapy and and that a lot of times you know initially what they will do is like put you into like a group therapy and like it's, it's all of these like different bureaucracy mm -hmm. bu bureaucratic um, things that like would probably take really long periods of time <laughs> that clearly like Maud doesn't have like she's somebody who probably needs like urgent help like a therapist immediately um, and yeah I think you know that there's another there's another strain of this that's just, you know, sort of traced back to what we were just talking to about mm -hmm. the way that they're not able to be really intimate with each other is like it's a film about people taking care or two women who, you know, this woman who's taking care of this older woman, but mm -hmm. like really they could sort of like take care of each other and they're always like getting their wires crossed and they end up just being cruel to each other, whether that's unintentional or not. Um, and that is also, you know, there's something about about that and the fact that they're in like this small town and um they are as we were saying like these are two women who have sort of like rejected community but they're also themselves kind of outsiders because Maude is obviously Welsh and Amanda seems to be American or Canadian mm -hmm. so they're mm -hmm. not from there and so there's all of these different like class uh, social, you know, social political um, elements of the film that are really fascinating and never really elaborated on. But, you mm -hmm. know, they're there just enough for you to, like, sort of think about how how many borders are between these people, essentially, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And um, I wanted to talk a bit about also, we sort of skirted around it, but... Uh, what do you make of the way that the film showcases uh, Maud's uh, self-harm? Which is still not something that I've seen that often portrayed on screen. I mean, again, it is interesting that we have to look at this through the lens of religion. Mm. As opposed to just exploring somebody who, um, you know, self-harms. Because I think it's, it's a difficult topic. Um, and also, you know... Yeah, I think there's just, like, a lot of psychological complications there mm. with, you know, um, to do with triggering and also how to portray it in a way that is is um, generous and careful. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the way that Mott does it ends up leading to just sort of more... Um, uh, I mean, obviously it's there and it's part of, it's very much part of that ambiguity that we were talking about. Like it's psychological and it's also religious, but its implications are, are really symbolic because I think it's not just that she clearly, you know, doesn't like herself, but there's also a lot there. You know, we mentioned 
you know, the way that religion sort of uh, uh, lends to shame um, and the way that a lot of religions, you know, a lot of religions demand that you perform your shame, right? Like you have to like put on this performance. So like the book that you mentioned, like the body is a stage, like it's a, it's a performance, like so many of the scenes where she is harming herself to me are, you know, they're like very triggering, but they're also like, they're not, they're very biblical. I mean, like, they're, and they're also just like deeply, um, you know, deeply psychological and, and also very much part of, I think, the film is trying to um, sort of sketch this, this uh, portrait of guilt and how it mm -hmm. sort of like eats at a person. Mm -hmm. And it's really brilliant. No, well, I don't, I don't know if I would say it's a brilliant, it's a well executed, but like, uh, you know, it's in, in very horrifying performance, uh, an, an externalization of the way that shame really destroys a body. Because the other thing is like, you know, we're talking about her self harm, but Maude also has uh, stomach pains. Like she keeps complaining about these mysterious stomach pains, like her stomach hurts. And um, that's like, you know, where anxiety and guilt are located. And, mm -hmm. and so again, something else that really links her to Amanda is that um, in the scheme of this story is that we're thinking about not just the ways that women's bodies are portrayed as monstrous in horror, mm -hmm. but the way that, you know, Rose Glass does this thing that I think is really fascinating, which is that she sort of locates the horror in the body. Mm -hmm. And it's not like, cause I mean, like, otherwise, you know, these things are, um, these things are really externalized generally in films in a supernatural way. Mm -hmm. And I think by making them a kind of like, you know, this is something that is actually like quite natural that, you know, women have pains and, and they're sometimes mysterious and sometimes mm -hmm. not. And like, how do they then like cope with that? Being conscious of time, I want to move on to the actual mm. horror. And I think yeah. you're right. And actually the film does this so sparingly of mm -hmm. making the, of using the monstrous and the supernatural in kind of really, really choice bursts. And so, and you alluded to the one <laughs> jump scare that made you gasp in the, in the pre-spoiler section. So oh what do you goodness. think of, I think that that's a really big turning point for the film. Right. Because I think it's a, and it's still ambiguous, but Maude basically has been fired by Amanda and then she co she goes back to her house um, for reasons that I'm still unclear on. <laughs> I, I'm assuming to, to save like, herself. Yeah, to, to save her soul, blanket, <laughs> save yeah. it. And she, uh, she's very strangely dressed. She's got the, the determination of Travis Bickle in that. Like, it's the yeah. same thing. She puts on the <laughs> exactly. very strange uniform that makes sense only to her. Yeah. She's like dressing herself up as a saint, as like the yeah. iconography of a saint. In the same and way as Travis puts on his like uh, dark... I know jacket and the pins yeah, and gives the, himself a mohawk but, and you're yeah. like what does that have to do Why? with your yeah. killing of this <laughs> senator that you want to kill it's all that's a connection that I have it like there should be there definitely should be more taxi driver versus and and Saint Maud like what a double bill and I know. <laughs> also <laughs> more connections but also and you know like Margot Clark kind of really already looks kind Kind of like a pre-Raphaelite woman type because she's got like these very like thin features and all mm -hmm. of this hair and um yeah so she's like dressed up like a saint and she goes into uh, Amanda she sneaks into Amanda's house the door is left open for some reason rich people and, I don't know yeah I guess like <laughs> and then she just like 
she goes upstairs and uh, she has some holy water, which makes a very interesting sizzling sound when applied to Amanda's forehead. And um, yeah, Amanda reveals herself to be some sort of demon, mm -hmm. supposedly. Perhaps mm -hmm. it's all in, in Ma's head. It's not clear, but Amanda, uh, her face sort of like shrinks and then elongates and then she starts speaking in this very like, you know, classic demonic voice. We also have been spoken a lot about how God speaks to Maude at one point as well. And he speaks in Welsh, which yes. I guess like, <laughs> you know, why not? But I, it's, it's very two, it's very two very inter interesting juxtapositions of like mm -hmm. God and the devil speaking to her. Um, and, and actually, and I mean, this is stuff that, um, that I've read about in the, in some of the interviews that Rose Glass mm -hmm. and Morphid Clark, Clark have done, yeah. um, which is, it's actually her it's her voice speaking welsh and they sort of distorted ah. it and that all came about because i misremembering if it was a the audition process or once she was cast already but once rose like found out that morphid was welsh and she heard her speaking welsh she was like oh that's the that's the voice of god right. god is welsh and kind of it makes sense because uh, Maud is Welsh. Mm -hmm. She's also a Welsh woman living in this seaside English town. Right. So it mm -hmm. would make sense because when you're when you're I don't know I don't pray but if you're praying or you're speaking you know you're pumping yourself up in your head. Yeah. You're gonna speak in the voice that you yeah, would like, ordinarily yeah. hear like your own mm -hmm. voice. So it would make sense that if God uh, is in Maud's head and either if you choose to interpret it as kind of it he really is speaking to her or it's her kind of making up the voice of God in her head, right? it would come out in Welsh, which is her mother yeah. tongue. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, like, there's also, like, there's a, another film, like the, you know, the animated film, The Prince of Egypt, also did this with Val Kilmer, who played the main character, Moses, and then the voice of God is his voice distorted. So that's interesting that, like... <laughs> Listen, How's you just brought done? up the Prince of Egypt. I oh. am in awe. This A is not the journey I was expecting. A <laughs> <laughs> great digression. Let's talk about the Prince of Egypt. I went to see that film in the cinema and I have not there. spoken to anyone about it since. Really? Yeah, which is talk the thing that happens it. when we speak, like when we started talking about the skeleton key and I'd never <laughs> spoken to a living human being about it. Do you, need, do you need, like, a sort of spin-off podcast where it's, like, Anna talks about films that she hasn't talked about in Asia, or I make frequent guest appearances? We can talk about the Prince of Egypt. I'm I mean, absolutely down. I mean, that is a whole other podcast, which is basically yeah, exactly. the, the 12 films that only Kelly Weston and Anna Bogutskaya have seen. No one else has seen them. Even the directors have not seen them. <laughs> mod like mm. it's a really um that scene is so uh, i <laughs> i don't have any words for it because this is this is the moment where also she kills amanda basically and she kills her in the same way that she has accidentally killed this other person uh by um that her patient where she sort of cra cracks their rib cage no, she stabs, I think she stabs her. her in, no, but she stabs her in the ribs, right? Mm. Like she stabs her right in the center, the same place yeah, where she yeah. stabs. So, um, yeah, so she doesn't kill her in the same way, but she kills her in the exact same location. Yeah. Um, but it's a horrifying scene, not yeah. just because of, you know, Amanda and what Amanda is saying, but also because it sends 
mod into a frenzy. Mm. And then, you know, we've said that there's this one horrifying scene, but like there's a there's two actually because the final shot is also pretty horrifying. I was just about to ask you about the ending. Yeah. What do you think of it and the ending, but specifically the last couple of frames of the ending? Right. Because it's like so should we should um I'll just set this up. Mm. Um after the scene, Maud covered in blood again because her the flashbacks of her in the hospital after she's killed this patient are also her covered in blood. Yeah. So Maud leaves Amanda's house and she walks to the beach with a bo- a huge gallon of acetone. Uh, is that what it is? I think it's some something. So- it's something flammable. It's like lighter yeah. fluid or gasoline yeah. or something. And yeah. she's dressed in her saint Saint Maud sheet bed sheet basically. Yeah. <laughs> Saint Maud Chic Betsy. <laughs> and she uh yeah, she goes to the beach and again, you know, she puts on a performance using her body because people stop to look at her. Mm. And she pours this fluid over her head. And um the first oh, also we're forget I'm forgetting just a little bit. She gets wings at one point. She gets like she sees herself in these very celestial wings. Yes. But by the time she gets to the beach, you know, we're not seeing that. So mm. again, it's still like really playing with your idea of like what's real and what's not. Yeah. And so she turns to all of these people on the beach who are watching her. She pours this fluid over her head and she is just like illuminated in this bright light, like in this bright silhouette. And then she lights herself on fire. And then there's people who are screaming and they're just like, somebody stop her. But, you know, um, yeah, people aren't. It's just a little too late. And uh, she sets herself on fire. And the last few frames are like horrifying. Like, it's just her, you know, on fire skeleton. It's very dark. And mm. it just sort of cuts out. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's just, uh, again, sort of, it's a film that really, I mean, for some people, you know, we're being uh, possibly obtuse because they're just like, it's obvious that, you know, she clearly is crazy or insane mm. or, you know, and I think to me that is really prescriptive because, you know, it, a lot of, of, um, you know, her belief in, in, in what she's doing um, is still like, you know, it doesn't, to me, it just doesn't really, it, it still doesn't like really resolve that issue. And I also think it's like, you know, it becomes this really symbolic thing anyway that's kind of divorced from whether or not it's like psychological or religious because Mm -hmm. at the same time, you know, the themes that we've been talking about, you know, like being antagonistic to your body, like her setting herself on fire is such an evocative image. It's interesting because uh, the first time I watched it, I, I read it as, oh, it's all in her head. Mm. that's what the last couple of frames the really shocking last couple of frames were kind of decisively telling us that it's all in her head and then the second time I watched it I maybe I empathized too hard with Maud where I because the whole film is shot very much kind of between entirely from her point of view and very much inside of her head yeah to shifting to occasionally other people's point of view of her and those are some of the yeah. the cruelest scenes where we see Maud b- through other people's eyes. That that yeah. last the murder scene, the murder of Amanda, and that kind of the devil appearing scene. I mean, that's very much 
either a confirmation of all of her beliefs or a complete loss of control on her part, like her mania and her um, overzealous obsession with with her idea of God has just reached kind of an, a point of no return. Like she's too far gone. Right. And that's how she's seeing it. And the kind of the shot of just Amanda's body with no demonic face and no big religious fanfare kind of demonstrates no right. you've just killed a woman you haven't killed yeah. satan you've killed a woman who was under yeah. your care and you you know it's a clear cut kind of you had motive you were just fired plus you are unstable yeah but that kind of walk to the beach really changes perspectives like it's so quick and quite subtle as well where we go from other people looking at her to more on this dramatic end of her kind of almost like walking down the um oh god what do you call it walking down the plank you know towards her sainthood yeah. like this is the final step and she's so happy that she's gonna become saint Maud at the end yeah and like it kept going back and forth between that so much i was like actually i love the ambiguity of it mm. i mean i've my reading of it sh continued shifting as that during the entirety of that second watch of like is it in her head is it real is it a bit of both and right. it kind of works on both levels i think yeah it becomes really rich that way i think too mm -hmm. um and it's so interesting what you're saying about like you know for most for those those moments where we get uh mod from the perspective of other people are really mm. cool as mm. well um which is why i do think like you know this is a film that handles that in such a sophisticated way those social and also political implications you know this is somebody who like clearly needs help and but also feels like very alienated and isolated and yeah. um you know maybe that can be read through the lens of her not being of this place and mm. you know also just sort of being surrounded by people who are you know i mean if we're talking about like that or this has been a question for a long time so mm -hmm. i'm speaking from the outside here you know what is it what is a british film or like what does what does british cinema look like today and i think this is so emblematic of that i mean it will never be considered i think in a, in a sort of like you know um because horror films tend to be so dismissed still. Mm. Um, but to me, this is like a very classic British film. It's a British, it's a film about, you know, British repression and um, how that repression really, you know, resist um, meaningful connections. Um, and yeah, how lonely people are, how lonely people get. And so, yeah, this is my thing. Like, you're right. Like th those religious implications and um, the psychological implications really feed each other anyway. Mm. Like they're mm. so intertwined and and um, to have one without the other is kind of like, to me, like you're sort of, it's, it's a bit myopic. And so they're, they're all, they're both like painting the same picture. They're lending to the same portrait of, you know, these people who have been like really alienated and yeah like she totally doesn't have you know there's no life for her anymore like she definitely has motive and their fingerprints probably all over the uh <laughs> the crime scene <laughs> and uh yeah and it's in uh, yeah i mean you're so right to also just like point out that because that is like a really chilling image as well is amanda sort of lying in that bed uh murdered with like mm. blood all over her and like the scissors sticking out like it's yeah th there are a lot of like really powerful images in this film like that a lot of powerful shots to wrap up is there is there anything about the film 
that struck you that we haven't covered in our conversation? No, I think we we have covered everything. Um, we've <laughs> we've actually like gone quite long, but I've been able to say stuff that I couldn't fit into my review. <laughs> um, but yeah, what I what I would say, I mean, just like at this point, is mm. that everybody I know like British cinema is going through a lot at the moment. Cinema all over the place. Um, but I would just say like, this is a really excellent film, but you know, prioritize your health and safety. And if anything can be gleaned from the film, you know, it's that, you know, take care of other people. And as opposed to, you know, isolating yourself, like, you know, our choices have do have consequences for other people. So yeah, just be careful, um, take proper precautions and, this is a movie. Like, it's a very good film, but like, obviously, everybody be safe out there. Kelly, thank you so much, as always. Thank for you. For your time and for <laughs> insight that only Kelly Weston can bring. <laughs> thank you. Nobody else would bring up Prince of Egypt. <laughs> Nobody else. I, uh, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind you are the only person on the planet who could do that. Um, I am excited <laughs> for that spin off podcast. <laughs> Oh, so where can people find out more of your work online? Um, you can find me generally on twitter.com. I don't post a lot, but I love to to like <laughs> funny things. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I've written for a uh, movie notebook, for Reverse Shot, and Film Comet, Sign Sound, places like that. So yeah, I'm I'm online in and about. Beautiful. Kelly, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was film critic Kelly Weston talking very eloquently about the very horrifying and super interesting film St. Maud. You can find Kelly on Twitter at Kelly underscore Weston. And now you're going to be able to hear my interview with writer-director Rose Glass and lead actor Morfitt Clark. Thank you both so much for making the time. I've seen the film twice now and... I actually don't have any words for how much I love it after I first saw it at LFF last year and when I rewatched it a couple of weeks ago. Hey. So massive congrats. Oh, thank you. But I wanted to start with um with a very kind of simple back to the back to the basics question really for you Rose is and it's the to talk a little bit about the process of you crafting the story of same mode and mostly kind of what came first with it. Was it an image? Was it the character of Maud? Was it, um, was it a, a, a pulsing feeling? <laughs> a deep throbbing pulsing feeling. <laughs> um, probably that. And that, no, I think the, I sort of started coming up with an early version of it when I was just finishing up film school in sort of 2014. Um, and I think I just sort of, the initial sort of premise that I, thought of that I just thought would be fun to take a bit further was um, a young, basically I guess the character. Uh, so it's going to be a young woman who hears the voice of God inside her head and falls in love with him. And that was kind of the initial hook, I guess. Um, I wanted the, the idea of a film being a two-hander between a woman and a voice in her head just seemed really interesting. And I didn't, initially I didn't really put too much thought or anal analysis into wondering why does she hear this voice? Does that mean God is, you know, real or is this a, you know, to do with her losing her mind or what's the ramifications of that. So then I think, so then it was a process of like the next two years working and reworking the story and sort of taking it in different directions. And quite soon she became a nurse and then 
the Amanda character was there. So I sort of had that dynamic fairly early on and sort of shifted it from, I think quite quickly we lost the voice, like God's voice, it felt mm -hmm. a bit gimmicky. Yeah, lots of, lots of changing around of story from there, but essentially following that kind of idea. And um, Morvik, could you talk a little bit about how you interpreted Maud's relationship with God? And it's interesting to hear that there was a voice for him at, in the initial stages of the film, and then it becomes her voice kind of talking to him but, and feeling him, but not really, not really having a response. How do you see Maud's relationship with God? Oh, so I saw Maud's relationship with God. I, I, um, this was actually kind of a breakthrough I had by talking to lots of my family about who so happened to work in the health service. And um, what I was really surprised about that there are these people in my family who do, in my eyes, a much more important job than I could ever do that have more skills than I could ever have. And also kind of, definitely idolize them in a way that we're now seeing is very unhelpful during these last few months. Um, and I was really shocked and kind of saddened by the fact that they were all felt so guilty. They just carried around so much guilt for every patient that they hadn't been able to do enough for every patient that they hadn't been there in time for because there wasn't enough people on the ward and stuff like this. And so I really started to just think of Maud kind of being utterly riddled with terrible guilt while being a personality who wanted to kind of help people and do things right and that kind of really made her relationship with god made perfect sense because if you feel guilty about everything like someone who forgives everything is just heaven if I can to say you. with you there's something that i really was drawn to about Maud that Maybe it's also reading into it a little bit, but it's this idea of, of burnout, of her trying to regain control because she's given so much to her work and to this idea of care that her relationship with God perhaps becomes a thing to try to, to regain control of herself and her body and her position. Can you talk a little bit about this idea of perhaps her having burnt out by trying to care for people? Yeah. Something my mum, sorry, let's bring up my mum all the time. Something my mum said also is that like, what's really awful is that when you become part of someone's humiliation and so you see yourself as part of the bad machine. And um, I definitely feel that kind of Maud feels that way. Mm. While also kind of, I, I don't know if you wrote it like this, Rose, but I when I read this, I felt it was so much like a millennial story because I found that she was like, she was so obsessed with like productivity and reaching goals and kind of being asked to achieve these things that were totally unachievable within the system that she exists. And um, so I kind of, I think it was just striving that fascinated and just what I found so tragic about her. I don't know if that really answers the question. It does. The millennial thing was funny because I, I... I mean, I guess because it's a contemporary set film and she's our age, then she's a millennial. Um, I didn't think about it as consciously as when I was writing it, but I know you'd said that kind of thing before, which I, um, like, you know, I deliberately didn't put much social media stuff in there, whereas perhaps realistically a character like that might be on Instagram the whole time. But since you pointed it out, more obviously in other interviews, now I sort of see it like really similarly, like the way she has, the relationship she has in with God in the film kind of does mirror 
the way a lot of sort of young people do sort of communicate with the world through social media now like it's this constant thing of feeling like you're being watched and constantly wanting to be validated by other people and wanting to be seen to be kind of busy and a lot of it's a bit of a performance but um yeah so in that sense she is a typical angst-ridden millennial <laughs> maybe that's why I responded so well to it um yeah I did actually kind of want to dig into uh the bodily aspects of the film which I found really interesting um so really this is a question for both of you really what do you think is Maud's relationship with with her body complicated <laughs> <laughs> maybe um I I think I mean the way I, I, yeah probably complicated than you could as it is as everyone's is but I guess the stuff that I was aware of when I was writing it was the the limitations of of the human body compared to sort of where you can go within your mind and sort of perhaps spiritually if that's how you uh interpret things so for me like her body kind of becomes a sort of like battleground for taking out all of these uh frustrations that she has with her sort of with the frustrations of, of reality and her body, I guess. And, um, you know, like there's, we, you see in the film that there, that she's got kind of self-harm scars mm -hmm. and that's obviously something that's been um, part of her way of coping with stuff in the past. I mean, in, in my head, they were meant to, I don't know how they, if they look that way, they're meant to be old ones. Like to me, self-harm was maybe a way that um, Katie, basically the sort of her, who she really is before mm -hmm. she kind of adopted this Maud persona, uh, probably like self-harm was kind of a way of dealing with um, stress and burnout and all these kind of, all the things we were talking about before. Mm -hmm. um, but, and so that's kind of why I thought when God communicates with her, it should be a sort of physical feeling as well. Mm -hmm. And that I sort of, I thought that that would be a more uh, relatable and sort of cinematically interesting way of portraying somebody's relationship with God rather than it just being a sort of academic uh, sort of intellectual thing mm -hmm. for her to sort of physically feel him because I think even people who aren't religious you know we can all respond to you know pleasure and pain as sort of the most basic kind of motivators I guess um, so the idea of her having these kind of crazy orgasmic sort of episodes I was like even if you don't believe in God like that looks like it feels nice so I, I get why you're being obsessive and and um doing everything for this god who makes you feel like that um yeah i think i felt that maud was she feels that her spirit her soul is trapped within this horrible fleshy thing that yeah. can be used and fail mm. and be and um and i i, I feel what the part of the film that really gets me is like when she's raped and you just very much know that it's not the first time that her body been and so then also kind of her relationship with God in terms of her physical relationship with him like it's totally in within her control while feeling that she's in the control of someone else she's not being invaded or preyed upon as I feel that she has been many times and I really think what well, I think so I I don't feel that I, I find the way that Rose is included it in that it's kind of very much not a plot point or kind of and then this happens and then this happens it's kind of just the heavy load that like women have to just carry around and 
No, I love that you point that out because it really stood out to me as well. And and you're right. It's sort of like like the self-harm scars as well. It's sort of a faded scar, but that's there in her reaction, yeah. in the way that, that you play that, that scene plays out. On that note, I kind of wanted to continue into uh, the body horror aspects of the film and kind of Maud's self-flagellation and do whether you saw it... Um, as an as an aspect of control or more of almost self-punishment for that you mean the pins the pins uh the burning of her hand over the the stove the corn and i think yeah i mean i mean they're, they're obviously sort of a, a new manifestation mm. of the same kind of urges that she had when she sort of self-harmed but now these ones are sort of dressed up in a slightly more ceremonial religious oh i'm doing what god wants me to sort of way in the same way that uh you know, whereas before having sex with people sometimes sort of uh, complicated and, com and messy and mm. awful. Um, whereas now she can kind of channel those feelings through her relationship with God, which kind of she has a kind of sexual connection to, but it's sort of like you said, more of it's a sort of safe one, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that makes sense. And, but yes, the, the sort of the pins and the, the corn that she's kneeling on, well, maybe starting with the corn, like in the way it was, because obviously by later on, she sort of uh, sort of descended a little bit further. But by the, when we first meet her, I figured that the the sort of, you know, I don't want to say like minor, but yeah, the sort of more subtle ways that she self-harms, mm -hmm. like kneeling on this corn when she's praying. Um, for me, that's, she's kind of the whole sort of more persona. She's created a sort of more manageable way of channeling those kind of mm -hmm. urges and I think they make her feel actually good about herself this time because yeah she kind of sees them as like a little a small act of penance but I think also um a sort of uh empowering feeling because she feels that she's sort of also proving herself to God each time that she does something like that in a little way um and the that's the, the same way about the pins mm -hmm. because that obviously comes just after she's kind of hit essentially her lowest point um you know where she's kind of in my head, it was sort of like her kind of wandering the wilderness phase and, you know, she's rejected God and slipped back into her heathenous old past um, and kind of hit her lowest point and God's kind of pulled her back from the brink and given her one last, one last chance. So now she's kind of got to go one step further to prove her loyalty to him and to atone. Um, but I think she also thinks she's very proud of herself for doing so and um, gets a real kick out of it too. So fun mix of feelings going on. I was actually watching the documentary that Freddie Flintoff has just done about his bulimia. And it speaks a lot about this, like that he very much feels right now that he's in control of his bulimia and he kind of does a lot of exercise and things like that. And I, I was kind of feeling like that with more that I feel the moment that she's most vulnerable for me, one of was when she burns the back of her hand on the stove. Cause that, and that, those moments where she can't control her kind of urge to hurt herself, then unfortunately in her kind of feeling that she then regains control is by causing even more harm to her. She's constantly feeling that, and now that's fixed. And now yes. I fixed, and now I fixed that. Fix, 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 all of these little boxes pushed yeah. away. And they inevitably just like see or explode at different times. Totally, yeah, the, the bit where she burns her hand I always thought of as kind of different from the other self-harm bits as well, because yeah, like you said, that one's just more of a spontaneous, can't control, um, you know, it's, it's a sort of, to, just a sort of much more instinctual gut reaction 
to sort of deal with these kind of messy, complicated feelings that are coming up. Like you said, just right. Okay. Got rid of that. Whereas the corn and the, the pins, there's sort of a kind of ceremony to it. And I think she feels that that's a bit more kind of, I'm doing this for God. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's, you know, a really interesting choice to make Amanda, uh, Amanda's character into a choreographer and a dancer, or obviously her mm-hmm. main tool is her body. And could you talk a little bit about what you think Amanda represents for Maud? Maybe if Maud, I don't know if Maud uh, would have been kind of conscious about this and, and I'm sure would disagree, but um, if she were real, but she, but I guess Amanda, particularly the, maybe not the Amanda that she meets, but I think Amanda before she got ill is just kind of a, mm-hmm. a sort of opposite to Maud in a lot of ways. And in a lot of ways, the things that maybe secretly she sort of wants to be in terms of um, having kind of autonomy and uh, control and respect of other people. You know, I think for me, the fact that she's kind of some, you know, it says that she's a minor celebrity and, but you know, she has, um, you know, fans and people respect her for what she does. And I think that kind of adoration and respect actually is sort of one of the probably key things that Maud is actually motivated by, but maybe doesn't acknowledge as well. I feel like that's part of it. And she's just a lot more connected with her, Amanda is a lot more connected with just herself as a person and sort of, um, I don't know how to say, not as her own God, but you know, isn't beholden to anybody else. Whereas yeah. obviously Maud seems to be spending her entire life wanting to kind of please, to have other people's provables, so to please people. Um, and yeah, obviously just on the very like obvious level, like Amanda's very kind of liberal and open and um, hedonistic and all this kind of stuff that Maud doesn't allow herself to be. And uh, I think it sort of baffles more that Amanda seems to be, well, at first she thinks that she's sort of so able to live this way. But then when she starts to see sort of what she perceives to be um, doubts in Amanda um, or frustrations, I think then she's kind of like, oh, she is like me. She can see through all of this. Um, And she also needs to be fixed. Um, The idea of someone just being sort of happy with themselves is, I think, difficult for her to get. Um, I think she also thinks, sorry, I mean, listen to, I mean, I think like on a just, like, I think she thinks Amanda's cool. Like I think she thinks Amanda's interesting and, and fun, you know, she's kind of living in this kind of bleak little seaside town and I think doesn't really have any friends. And I think everyone always mm. reacts to her like she's a bit weird and she finds socializing difficult. And then suddenly there's, there's randomly this kind of, um, you know, bohemian, weird American dancer, lesbian woman kind of living in, in this mysterious house and I think it's just you know it's just I think she just thinks Amanda's quite cool and exciting and then when Amanda seems to pay attention to her yeah it's like oh you're making a friend. I think Maud is either feeling inferior or superior to whoever she's around and for a moment she feels that for the first time ever she's on the same plane and yeah I saw this um today actually about it where it was like um just in terms of like the trick and the joke of that, that it was like the saddest thing about Maud is that it's almost like it's all a big joke. And then the last moment is just the punchline just to really upset us. And fun. <laughs> like, oh my God. <laughs> Maud would be so, like susceptible to that because she's so kind of trusting and it's kind of the whole film. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. She's like, she's finally done it. 
and, and Morpheus, you know, what do you what do you think about Maud's um relationship with Amanda? Because I kept I've seen it twice now, and I kept wondering. The first time I was convinced of one thing, and then the second time I was doubting myself in my own reading of it. Kind of, does she want to save her? Does she want to be with her romantically? Does she want to be her instead and have that freedom that? Whatever the situations with whatever one of those she is, she's ultimately still working for Amanda for not very much money, and that kind of is an influence to any relationship that they could have. And I think that like the party scene for me is one of the most horrifying where we kind of like, she is just used as a prop and as a servant and as a joke. And it's like this whole dynamic that they're in for me, I don't think kind of can ever really work. You know, like people shouldn't have to pay to be looked after when they're dying. And if someone is going to do that, they should be really looked after because it's like, it's a very difficult job. Like we see when she chats to the nurse on the, the, on the seafront, you're kind of also like, God, these are some strange responses to kind of talking <laughs> about life and death. It's kind of the, the, what the, the situation, which I think often, obviously there's like amazing carers and there's people who kind of have amazing connections with them, but on the whole, the system, the way it is now, I don't think is, healthy and they fall into the most unhealthy because it's such a complicated sort of relationship to have with somebody because you have this sort of obviously employer employee thing but also being incredibly responsible and kind of having quite a lot of power over some like as in your patient being sort of physically weaker than you uh, and sort of just relying on you and in that sense the power dynamics were just very complicated and then also the thing that you know Amanda's got you know kind of fancier richer um all these kind of things. So, yeah, I like to think that I, I used to say, like when I was before we shot the film, I kind of liked the idea of thinking that maybe if they'd, you know, if they'd met on a more equal playing field or whatever, then maybe they could have had some nice, weird sort of friendship. But um, uh, yeah, I think there's just too many. It's just the whole situation. I want it to be just sort of a pressure cooker of just unhealthy dynamics um, that, that, that Maud has to try and navigate and then throw God into the mix as well. But um, <laughs> but, but the thing with Amanda as well is that because obviously I had to think quite a lot about sort of what Maud actually wants to do to Amanda in, in terms of like she says she wants to save a soul and like how do you do that and I, I don't even know if she necessarily has like a really specific idea of how she's going about it at that point I think she's just kind of sort of uh, rolling with things at that point and kind of just responding and feeling God's vibes but I think to me, subconsciously, all of that is just motivated by her being excited to have found someone that she feels that she connects with. And it's sort of motivated by just sort of a, a kind of, you know, very human urge for um, friendship. So in my head, I kind of, which if you take it to its natural conclusion, it's like what was Maud expecting to happen? I kind of thought that maybe in her sort of fantasy, it would be something like, you know, her and Amanda, her, her and Amanda just kind of locked away in the house until Amanda dies peacefully in Maud's arms or something saying that, you know, having some weird kind of intimate, just kind of holding each other gently and kind of murmuring about how much they like God together. But obviously Amanda's not quite, quite on the same wavelength. Um, but it, to me, that was, it was more, her idea of saving Amanda was more something to do with that than mm. 
you know, I know there's like a shot of her kind of pouring her booze away and it's like sort of the, the thing that sort of seems pointed mm. is the fact that, oh, this woman is typically sort of hedonistic in a kind of, you know, smoking, drinking, um, sex mm. kind of way. But, you know, as you can see when she actually ends up having this confrontation with Carol, like the fact that Amanda's gay isn't like anything to do with it. And I don't really think she even cares that much about a lot of the... Um, the other stuff I think it's just wanting she can see she thinks that she can see that Amanda has kind of I think a, rest, a restless soul of some kind um, and is using all of these various things as a distraction from sort of the important I questions think we have to wrap up now but I just wanted to ask you one final question just to to wrap up our conversation the reception for the film has been extraordinary over the past year and of what has been the thing that you're most pleased has stuck with people from the reactions that you've seen so far from audiences the industry I mean, to, to be honest, I'm, I mean, the whole, the whole thing, the whole sort of reception is, is, is slightly overwhelming, but the, the thing that I kind of, yeah, makes me sort of happiest is maybe just how much people seem to sort of like Maud just as a character and sort of embrace her as a character. Cause I kind of feel if you like the film, you, you like her and you get her and sort of the whole point of the film, I guess, is sort of, you know, empathy for outsiders and like, we should all be a bit nicer to each other, which even though yeah. it's maybe, it, maybe the film people seem to think it's quite horrible at points as well but because i'm a board apologist and i get still like quite upset if people are like she's so scary and mean <laughs> is she is she <laughs> <laughs> or is she deeply troubled yeah just people having empathy for her is like yeah really because she's not, cause, I mean, because she's like, like none of us, of course, she's not, she's not perfect. And um, yeah, she does some pretty horrendous things. Uh, and she parks up loads of stuff like everybody. And she, I don't know, she's got a slightly deluded um, picture of herself, like a lot of people do. So I like the pe fact that people embrace her warts and all, hopefully. Um, Thank you both yeah. so much for your time this morning and um, wishing you the very best with the, with the release on Friday. Really nice to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> and that's it for this episode of the Final Girls podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. If you can, please do leave us a review. You can find out more about what we do on thefinalgirls.co.uk and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at thefinalgirls.uk.